0: Galatians 6, we're going to read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, verse 18. Galatians six eleven to 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, no words and no songs that we sing can do justice and express who you are. And Lord, often we ought to just stand speechless before you and marvel at who you are. It's amazing, Lord, that we're here this morning all together, so many different backgrounds, so many different life stories, and yet one testimony that we are in and of ourselves unrighteous and righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have one boast, Lord, and it's in you. Lord, we thank you for this holy time to be together as the saints. Gathered in your name, Lord, we thank you that we can serve you with reverence and awe by grace. And Lord, we thank you for this time to listen to the scriptures that you've inspired and to be instructed by them. I pray, Lord, that you would take these final words in the book of Galatians that Paul wrote that you inspired him to write and you would... Implant them into our ears, into our minds, into our hearts, and change us by them, Lord. Help us to understand what we will look at this morning. Help us, Lord, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. May you be honored through this time, not only by what is said, but also by our hearing of what is said And Lord, we commit it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we've come to the final sermon of our series in Galatians. We've come a long way, and we've discussed many things. I'm sure a lot of what we've discussed, you forgot. And so the good news is, is that Uh, minus one sermon everything has been recorded there was a malfunction for one of the sermons but everything's been recorded and i just want to remind you you can go on the website and you'll find online the sermons through galatians if you want to go back and look at a particular point it's all there for those of you who have been uh, with us throughout this series from the beginning will recall that i subtitled this series serious freedom serious freedom And the book of Galatians is about freedom. And at the beginning of this series, in the introduction, I explained this phrase, why I chose it, serious freedom. And I explained how this phrase says two things about the freedom that's found in the book of Galatians. Two things about the freedom that's found in the book of Galatians. One, the freedom that is found in the book of Galatians is serious freedom, because it's substantial and amazing freedom. Amen? And I use the phrase serious freedom in the sense that we would say, that guy's got some serious money. Or that guy, had he, he got some serious air in that jump. And sometimes, sometimes we use the word serious to mean substantial and amazing, right? Wow, that was serious. That was the real deal. That had some uh, substance to it, Right? And it's in that sense that the book of Galatians talks about freedom. We're not talking about some nice sounding but hollow religious speak when we talk about freedom in Christianity. And I know that sometimes it can, for maybe outsiders and for us who have heard it many times, it can become that. But this is true and authentic experiential freedom. How many of you can attest that when You came to understand the gospel of righteousness through faith alone. When you realized that it wasn't by your works that you were right before God, that you you would say the best word to describe that experience was liberating. Would you say that's true in your experience? That it, it was liberating to discover that you could be forgiven of your sins and made right with God through faith alone, and not by keeping the commandments of God liberating. A weight is lifted off. I remember when I first became a Christian, I actually physically felt a weight lifted off me. That was a weight of anxiety and stress that was was pressing upon me. And that was lifted when I realized, hey, you know what? Even though I am a sinner who deserves the wrath of God, God loves me and provided cleansing and forgiveness and righteousness for me through Jesus Christ. It's a gift. It's not something I had to work for at all. It's not something I had to earn. It was just there for me to trust in and rest in and receive by faith. What a what a liberating experience that was for me. So we're talking about serious freedom, amazing freedom from as we've as we've as we've looked at freedom from law, freedom from condemnation, freedom from fear. The second way this phrase, um, the second thing that this phrase can mean when we talk about freedom in Galatians as serious freedom, is that this is a sober matter of life and death. It's serious freedom because it's a sober matter of life and death. It's a matter of extreme consequence whether you possess this freedom or not. Amen? So it's not only substantial and amazing, it's a matter of extreme consequence whether you possess it or not, unlike other freedoms that there are in this world. Right? You might not have economic freedom. You might not have social freedom. You might not have the freedom that William Wallace wanted. But if you don't have those, it's not of ultimate consequence. right? Because you can have all the other freedoms that this world can offer. Freedom of speech. You know, freedom of all the freedoms we want. Liberties in this country and America. But if you don't have the freedom that Galatians talks about, those other freedoms amount to... Nothing. Your eternal destiny depends upon whether or not you possess this freedom. And so it's serious. Freedom from God's law is a serious thing. God's law reveals to us what God's will is for our lives. How God wills for us to live our lives. And God's law tells us what will happen to us if we don't fulfill his will for our lives. So the will of God for our behavior is shown in the law, and the consequences for not obeying is there. If you're not free from the law, friends, and, I, and there, there are people here today who are not free from the law, and if you are not free from the law, then God will require what he has required in the law. If you do not fulfill his will, and no one does, you'll be subject to those consequences, those just deserts. And the, and the result is condemnation. So it's very serious that you have this freedom. And it's in these two senses Galatians talks about this freedom. In New York Harbor stands the Statue of Liberty, a symbol of American freedom. And millions and millions of people in this world have flocked to the United States, have, have immigrated to the United States from all over the world, making the United States the third most populous country in the world. There's China, there's India, and then there's the United States of America. It's amazing. With over 300 million people, it's amazing that's more than Russia, England, France. These countries have about, uh, have well under 100 million people. I think France is like 60 million people. These are old nations. How did the United States get so big so fast? Because people want freedom. And the Statue of Liberty is that symbol of freedom that many people saw and longed for when they came here. The modern world, for all that it's lost, is still interested in freedom And since freedom is one of the great distinctive characteristics of Christianity, we would see a mass immigration to Christianity that would eclipse any immigration to the United States of America. People coming for true freedom and true deliverance if they were not blinded to see their true condition. Amen? If people could see the real slavery that they were in and the real freedom to be found in Christ, they would immigrate to Christianity and to Jesus Christ but they don't because they don't think they're slaves and they don't understand what Christ can give them. For Christians, the cross, not the Statue of Liberty, is the symbol of true freedom. Amen? And you can have all other freedoms, as I said, but if you don't have this freedom, you are not free. As Jesus Christ himself said, if the Son will set you free, you'll be free indeed. He said that to the Jews when they said, hey, we're not slaves to anybody. He says, yes, you are. If the sun will set you free, you'll be free indeed. That's our message as Christians to this world. You are slaves. You don't realize it. Yeah, you can immigrate to America. You're still a slave until the sun sets you free. We turn now to this fascinating final section of the letter. And it is one section, verse 11 through 18, what we read. This, is, this constitutes the conclusion to the book of Galatians. The important thing I want to say here at the beginning is that paul does not as is typically done wind down here he does not wind down at the end of the letter as he often does actually in his other letters you know letters are often they they kind of start with a slow introduction some pleasantries and they build up to the main point and then they wind down paul doesn't wind down at all in fact he turns the intensity dial higher he does just the opposite And what he does here at the end of the book of Galatians in this final conclusion is he gives four startling, cold-water-in-your-face reasons to give heed and pay attention to his letter that he just wrote. He gives four reasons why you need to pay attention to what he's writing. And I can think of no more fitting ending to a book like the book of Galatians. And these reasons, brothers and sisters, that he gives to the Galatians 2,000 years ago are just as applicable and relevant today. And so this morning, we're going to look at these four reasons to pay attention to the letter of Galatians, four reasons why I should pay attention to this book, why you should pay attention to this book, why the Galatians, of course, should pay attention, and even why the non-believers of this world should pay attention. Number one. We should pay attention and give heed to the book of Galatians because Galatians is the most urgent letter in the New Testament. Galatians is an urgent letter, and there's no letter in the New Testament more urgent than this. Look at verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now this is a fascinating comment. We can't see Paul's original manuscript, but if we had the original manuscript, and they did, they would have seen that there was an unusual and striking visual feature about this original manuscript that they were holding. Large letters written by Paul's own hand. So there was something weird about the book of Galatians, the autograph. It was, the letters were bigger than normal. And another thing that was odd about it was Paul's own hand Had written it. Scholars love things like this, and they love to debate about them and ask why is why did he write it like this? And there's some interesting uh, suggestions. Some scholars suggest that it's because Paul had bad handwriting. (laughs) That's what they say. (laughs) He had bad handwriting, and that's why he wrote so big. And so he's basically saying here, hey, you know, it's me who's writing because the handwriting is so bad. (laughs) I don't think that's the case. Some others say that Paul had bad eyesight, and so he couldn't really see the page very well, so he had to kind of go close and write big. I don't believe that's the case either. As most commentators agree, Paul is rather writing in large letters with his own hand because he's emphasizing what he's writing. It's kind of like when you write an email and you highlight what you're saying and put it in bold, and italics, and underline in all caps. So what we do with email, we have ways in which we can visually emphasize through writing our, what we're saying. As J.B. Lightfoot comments, he writes it in large, bold characters that his handwriting may reflect the energy and determination of his soul. But the second question is, to what text is he referring? What, what text is Paul referring to when he says, see what large letters I'm writing with my own hand? Now, standard procedure in the ancient world uh, was that you would dictate a letter to someone who would be writing it down for you. That was standard procedure. And the person who's writing down the letter is called an uh, amuensis. And Paul would actually use someone like that in his letters he would dictate to someone else he would just be speaking and somebody would be writing but it was standard procedure to do this and standard procedure to pick up the pen at the end yourself and to write the conclusion and paul did this often if you want to just quickly look at second uh, thessalonians chapter 3 second thessalonians chapter 3 verse 17 just keep your finger in galatians cuz we'll go right back And in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So Paul's typical method of writing was to dictate to somebody else who would write down the whole letter, and at the very end, he'd pick up the pen and write his greeting. And the greeting would... Show the reader, this is this is really from Paul. So the question is, back in Galatians, is Paul simply picking up the pen at verse 11 and he's saying, hey look, notice how the text has changed? Notice how the word suddenly got big? Because I'm writing this conclusion to you. Or, is Paul saying, notice that the whole letter is written big? That I've written the entire thing to you? Because it could mean either Thing. And if we look at verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It doesn't necessarily have to just be the conclusion. He could be saying, I'm writing this whole letter to you with my own hand. In big letters. Now we can't be certain, but I believe, brothers and sisters, that the weight of evidence lies with the latter. That Paul wrote the entire letter of Galatians with his own hand, in big letters. That's my conviction. We can't be certain. And the only objection I hear to that is that that would be unusual. That's the only objection I hear. That would be unusual for him to write the whole letter himself. But everything about this letter is unusual. There's a level of passion and urgency in this letter that makes us expect the unusual. And if you remember, when we discussed the introduction of the letter, we discussed that that was a not-so-customary introduction. It was an unusual introduction. If you're familiar with Galatians, Paul dispenses with his usual pleasantries, prayers, and thanksgivings. He doesn't start the book of Galatians like he starts all of his other letters by saying, "Um, Greetings to you. I'm really thankful for you guys. I'm praying God's best for you. He just dives right into the matter and says, I'm amazed that you guys are departing from the grace of Christ. And so he dispenses with all that typical stuff in an unusual way and jumps right into the matter. And here's the point. So it is at the end of the letter as well. We have a not so customary conclusion as we would now expect from the book of Galatians. There's nothing about this conclusion that is like his other conclusions. Usually, in Paul's letters, he closes or concludes with greetings. You probably remember that, right? Greet so-and-so. Greet Luke. Greet Phoebe. In Romans, the whole chapter is basically greetings. And uh, sometimes he'll tell them about his travel plans, or he'll say some request: Please bring the parchments. Please treat this guy well when you meet him. Paul does nothing of the sword in the book of Galatians. He totally dispenses with his usual, uh, the usual things he would conclude with. He simply strongly exhorts them to pay attention to what he's saying and reject the false teachers and he ends abruptly. And all of this communicates urgency. So just like his introduction, he's not messing around because the subject matter is so important, serious and urgent. So at the end, we have urgency. The Dutch theologian Herman Ritterbos comments that this short and unprepared for conclusion leaves the readers under the full force of the gripping admonition of the letter. The way it abruptly ends look how it abruptly ends. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brethren. Amen. So instead says, saying greetings and I request, he's like, don't trouble, it, tr- don't trouble me anymore. Grace be with you guys. <laughs> it's abrupt. It leaves an effect like a song that doesn't wind down. You know, some songs end by repeating themselves and it just kind of fades out. And once it fades out, you don't really hear the song anymore. But sometimes songs just end abruptly and it almost, leaves, it almost leaves the sound in the air for a moment. Whoa. And that's what the book of Galatians is like when it ends. So from the first word to the last, from the tone of the letter, from the warnings of the letter, from the appeals of the letter, Paul's urgency about the matter of righteousness through faith is crystal clear. You couldn't hear more clearly that this issue of righteousness through faith is the most serious issue of all. If anyone wanted to communicate that they were serious, it was Paul. And so, first of all, the Galatians letter should be heeded by you and I because it is the most urgent letter in the New Testament. Secondly, the book of Galatians is to be heated because Galatians is about far more than just circumcision and rituals. The book of Galatians is about far more than just circumcision. And look at verse 12 and 13. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Now, brothers and sisters, there are many people who think that the whole issue in the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans is simply about rituals and circumcision. That's what they think. I'm referring to uh, those who call themselves Christians and who claim to believe in the Bible and in the New Testament, but don't believe in the gospel of grace and righteousness through faith alone. And you know there's many of them, right, in this world. And I'll name some names. The Catholics, the Mormons, the Greek Orthodox Church, they claim to be Christian, but they don't believe as uh, Protestants do, (laughs) evangelicals do, that salvation is a gift from God, that is uh, forgiveness is something you don't have to work for, you don't have to earn. And so you, you, have you ever wondered, how do these people who claim to be Christians and they claim that righteousness must be uh, achieved by our own works, how do they deal with the book of Galatians? How do they deal with the book of Romans? How do they deal with statements in the Bible that says, we are not justified by works or works of the law, but through faith in Christ? How do they deal with that? Well, here's how they deal with it. They say when Paul in the New Testament writes that we are not justified through the works of the law, all they mean, all they mean, you Protestant silly people, is that we don't have to do the old Jewish mosaic ceremonies anymore to be justified before God. We don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to have sacrifices. We don't have to do circumcision, keep the festivals. All of that ceremonial stuff is over now that Jesus has died and fulfilled the shadows but don't think for a minute, you crazy evangelical people, that you don't have to keep the moral commandments in the, in the law, and that you can just be justified and forgiven simply by faith alone without having to obey the commands of God and repent of your sins. Have you heard this before? Is this familiar? This is how they deal with it. If you grab their commentaries, or go to their institutions? And you ask them. Here is a, a famous Catholic commentary, a quote on this very matter. We must ever bear in mind that St. Paul speaks exclusively of the ceremonial part of the law and not of the moral. Of this latter, the moral, he says in his epistles, his epistle to the Romans, that the doers of the law shall be justified. So don't think for a minute, and we must always bear in mind, this is only about the ceremonial stuff being done away with, not the moral. We, don't have to, we still have to do that. Brothers and sisters, those who think like this simply don't get it. Amen? They simply don't get it. Try telling that to one who is suffering with a guilty conscience. Try telling that to someone who knows they're a sinner and a failure. Not because they failed to keep the ceremonial stuff, but because they failed to keep the moral stuff. And they're feeling guilty, and they're feeling dirty, and they're feeling like God's upset with them and hates them and is going to send them to hell. Which, there's some truth to the fact that God is just God who's going to send sinners to hell, right? And they are afraid. And then I've blown it. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. And you try going to a person with a guilty conscience and you say, don't worry about it. You don't have to be circumcised, but you do have to keep the moral law. But that's the thing I've, I've broken and I'm worried about. got to try harder, man. Come on. Be like me. I'm not breaking the moral law. It doesn't appease the guilty conscience. The message of the gospel is for sinners. That other message isn't for sinners. That other message is only good news for self-righteous people who think that they're moral and who think that they're obedient and good. The gospel is for those who know that they're guilty and it comes like good news and refreshing cold water for those who are looking for that message of God's love and grace towards sinners. Can you say amen that in your own experience, that it wasn't, you didn't become a Christian because you realized God didn't require ceremonial stuff anymore. (laughs) But you you became a Christian because you realized you were a sinner going to hell and Jesus could save you. You a sinner. That's the good news. And so we see right here, look at verse 12 and 13. We see that it isn't circumcision per se that's the problem at all. It's what's behind circumcision. It's what their motivation is for being circumcised. And what's behind their push to be circumcised is the same thing that's behind all works-based thinking. And there's two things Paul mentions here. First of all, they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ, verse 12. Why are they wanting to be circumcised? Because they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Secondly, they want to glory, verse 13. They don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ, and they want to glory. This is why they are wanting to be circumcised. And in verse 13, when he says, they want to glory in your flesh, don't think that that means they want to brag about how great you are for getting circumcised. They want to brag about how great they are for getting you circumcised. You see, that's what's going on. This is non-spiritual, fleshly, worldly thinking. The first is worldly thinking because they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. It's self-preservation that's only concerned about what man can do and not about what God can do. They're only concerned about getting praise from men and avoiding the uh, wrath of man than they are are concerned about having God um, give them approbation and avoiding his wrath. And so it's unspiritual, fleshly thinking. And it's also unspiritual thinking in that they want glory because they think that they have something to glory about in themselves, which is fleshly, worldly thinking. We have nothing to glory about in ourselves at all. Do you believe that? Can you, can you agree with me that we have nothing to glory about in ourselves at all? Our very existence and all that we do and all that we have is a gift from God. And so this self-righteous desire for glory is unspiritual. In Matthew 16, you'll remember that Jesus showed us that any form of Christianity that seeks to abolish persecution is satanic. Any form of Christianity that seeks to abolish persecution is satanic. You might not remember. Jesus tells them that he's going to be crucified. He tells his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, and you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be betrayed and crucified. Peter, the, the star who believes in Jesus and just proclaimed him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, doesn't like that. And he says, no, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, that's the voice of Satan. That's the voice of one who isn't savoring the things that be of God, but the things that be of this world. Because how is, uh, perse- how is abolishing persecution satanic? Because the only way to abolish it is to abolish the truth. The only way to abolish the persecution that comes to Christ and to Christians is to abolish the truth, because that is why Jesus was put on the cross. I mean, from the human point of view, from the worldly point of view. I mean, obviously, God foreordained it from before the foundation of the world. Jesus laid down his own life, and no one took it from him. But the reason, from another perspective, why the Pharisees wanted Jesus to be crucified and why they were persecuting him was because they hated him for what he preached, and Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify that their deeds are evil. That's why they hate me. That's why they want me to go away. And just as they hate me, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you for my name's sake and for the truth's sake and for righteousness' sake. It's for preaching righteousness that persecution comes to the Christians and to Christ. And the only way to avoid it is to abolish the truth or to stop preaching the truth, which is exactly what the false teachers at Galatia were doing. Why were they preaching circumcision and not righteousness through faith? Because they didn't want to be persecuted for the message of the cross. That's why. You can preach that Jesus died on the cross all day. But if you are not preaching righteousness through faith in Christ, then you are not really preaching the cross. Because the cross of Christ proclaims that righteousness cannot come by the works of man. And you'll remember in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says this emphatically, that if righteousness came by law, then Christ died for nothing. The cross of Christ and the preaching of the cross is the preaching of righteousness that He died because no one is righteous. Jesus died on the cross because you and I are sinners who have not and cannot meet God's standards in the law. That is why he died. If we could, he wouldn't have needed to die. He died to provide for us what we could not achieve ourselves. And worldly religion and worldly people hate the message of the cross. They hate it. They don't mind talking about the death of Jesus in some other interpretation but they do, want, do not and will not preach the death of Jesus as providing the righteousness we could not achieve. And so don't be fooled by Christian pseudo-Christians or pseudo-Christian groups that, you know, they do preach that Jesus died on the cross, but if you don't hear them saying, he died because we are unrighteous to provide righteousness for us, Then they are avoiding persecution for the cross of Christ. The world doesn't have a problem with people like that, but they do have a problem when you preach righteousness. They also want to glory, as I said in verse 13. This is another reason why the world cannot stand the message of the cross, because it's a death blow to all boasting. It's a death blow to all boasting. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 says that it is by grace that we're saved through faith not of works lest any man should boast. And so to become a Christian and to accept the truth is to understand that all boasting is being excluded from you. Romans chapter 3 verse 27 says the same thing. Where is boasting in this? He asks the question, if we're justified by grace through faith in Christ, through his death and not by the works of the law, where's boasting? You might almost hear some worldly person whining about it. Where's boasting in that? What's going to happen to my boasting rights? You have to say goodbye to them because there won't be any boasting anymore. And in heaven, heaven for all of eternity the only one who gets any glory is god and not yourself no one's going to think you're great in heaven everyone's going to think god's great in heaven where's boasting it's gone and so we have an antithesis the old creation wants to boast but the cross of christ takes boasting away and something has got to give you can't have it both you either cling on to your boasting and your pride and surrender the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ and you cling on to it and you, you, you're lost forever. What does it profit you? When well, you give up your boasting and you take refuge in the truth and in the goodness of God, it's such a beautiful message that even though you aren't, you have nothing to boast in, you have condemnation, yet God loves you and he wants to save you, and he did something for you. That's such a beautiful thing. So much more beautiful than our self-righteous boasting. And, you, and you, uh, you attain the salvation of your soul. I think that it's one of the greatest marvels, friends, in history. One of the greatest marvels in history that Saul, who had more reason than any other man to boast... Would say a thing like this in verse 14. Let's not forget who's saying this. This is being said by a man who hated the message of the cross, who persecuted those who preached righteousness and who preached the message of Jesus, and who, of all people, could say that if anyone thinks they could boast in what they've done and who they are, I could boast more. And here we see him saying in verse 14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I think that's one of the greatest marvels in the history, in history, that Saul would say this. See, in Saul's life, the old creation gave way to the new through his encounter with Jesus. And Saul, through his encounter with Jesus, saw through the whole sham of human works. And if you notice in verse 13, he states once again explicitly that those who are circumcised don't even keep the law. It's a big sham, guys. This whole you have to be commandment keeping to be saved, it's a facade. You ask any person in this world who says that, no, it's not by grace that we're saved, but we have to be keeping works to be saved, you just simply ask them, are you keeping the law of God? Are you keeping the standards? Are you obeying the commandments? And you might be surprised to hear them say yes at first, but if you really push them and say, really? You're really doing it? You don't sin? They'll say, well, no, okay, well, no one's perfect. No, I don't keep them. It's a sham. And through his encounter with Jesus, he saw through the sham that he had built up around himself. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me, Paul? Because I'm an insecure, hiding, self gloring hypocrite. And I don't like your message because it's scaring me. Paul saw that he deserved God's wrath, and he also saw not only that his life was a sham, not only that he deserved God's wrath, but he also saw in his encounter with Jesus the deep, deep love of Jesus for him in giving his life as a sacrifice for his sins and reaching out to such a sinner as, as him. As he said, this is, a, this is a saying I wish everyone would accept. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So don't, don't just think that you just got to realize you're guilty, but also realize that God loves you. Also realize that God cares about you, and he has expressed his amazing love for you, a love that is beyond anything you or I know through human love, by the giving of his son to die for us, evil, guilty, sinners, to give us a totally brand new life. A life that is uh, eternal life, incorruptible, intimacy with God in relationship, and a life that doesn't depend upon our own obedience and in which we do not have grounds for boasting. And Paul says in verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. But this life, this new life, this new creation that comes through Jesus, it's the only thing that matters. And this is the essence of the book of Galatians. Paul summarizes the whole thing right here. You guys are quibbling about whether we should be circumcised, it doesn't matter but what matters is the new creation. Not what we can do, but what God can do and what God can achieve. The work of God through the cross in giving us a totally new life that we couldn't get ourselves. This new creation only comes through the cross. It's not the rehabilitation of the old man. The new creation is not the rehabilitation of the old man. Christianity isn't, hey, your life's a mess. Here's the, here's the procedure to fix it. Christianity is the dissolution of the old man. You in and of yourself, you on your own, you relating to God apart from Christ, you trying to establish righteousness, you trying to achieve a relationship with God and eternal life, doesn't work. It's all got to go. You got to cash it in for a totally new mode of existence in which Christ is all in all in which you relate to God, not through yourself and what you do, but through Christ. And this only can come through the cross where, through faith in Jesus Christ, through union by faith, our old self dies. Our old self is gone, and we are a new creation through his resurrection and union with him in his death and in his resurrection. So Paul is not saying... When he says, "I've been crucified to the world, and the world's been crucified to me," he's not making a mere statement of renunciation, as if I don't, I, I you know, I, I turn my back on the world. Yes, that's true. But this is actually something deeper. This is ontological. This is him saying that through faith in Jesus Christ, my old self that everyone can see is actually gone. This isn't something that I can turn. You know, I can turn the light switch on and off and on and off, and one day I'm renouncing the world, and one day I'm not renouncing the world. Through Jesus Christ, the old is gone, and the new has actually come. If you're a Christian, God, before God, you are a new creation. Even if you have a bad day, you have a brand new mode of existence. It's objective, and it's accomplished through Jesus. What a strange boast in verse 14. I boast in this cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a strange boast to the world. Why would you glory in your death? Why would you glory in the dissolution of everything that you are and all the hopes of boasting? You're boasting in the dissolution of your boasting. Why would you do that? Why would you boast in the death of Jesus? That's gross. And it's good that Jesus died people would think, because he was preaching falsehoods. But we as Christians have a strange boast to the world, but it's not strange to God. Because we glory in what the cross means for us. We glory in the love and righteousness displayed there. And if Christianity doesn't have this strangeness, then it's not Christianity. Paul's boast here is meant to be exemplary for all. So, do you make your boast in the Lord? Can you say with Paul, amen in verse 14? I do not boast in who I am, but in the cross of what uh, the cross of Jesus, not what I have done, but what he has done. Thirdly, as I said, the book of Galatians is to be heated because it's about far more than circumcision. And I'll just say that th- those who think the book of galatians is just dealing with the abolition of rituals typically don't pay much attention to the book of galatians you know it's kind of like yeah i get the message don't have to go to the temple anymore and they they are ignorant of the actual message they don't heed it but we should heed it because it is far about far more than circumcision and my third point this morning is that galatians is about the only way to obtain peace and mercy from god look at verse 16 Those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Galatians is about the only way to obtain peace and mercy from God. And so it should uh, catch our attention for those who are looking for peace and mercy from God. And if you aren't looking for it, you should be looking for it. It's been noticed by commentators that Verse 16 is actually an allusion to the central prayer in Judaism called the Amidah. The central prayer in Judaism, even today, is called the Amidah. Uh, The form of it was finalized a couple centuries after Paul, but uh, in Paul's day, the Jewish people were praying this central prayer called the Amidah, and the last part of it is called the Sim Shalom, which is what Paul alludes to here in verse 16. Verse 16 sounds exactly like the Sim Shalom part of the main prayer in Judaism. It's a prayer for peace and mercy upon Israel. It's not a nicety. It's not just a nice thing to pray, you know, that doesn't have much meaning. It's not just something you should tag on to the end of your prayers, But for the Jews, and it should be for us Christians as well, the prayer for peace and mercy upon Israel is actually the prayer for the fulfillment of God's promises for his people. Because God promised to Israel peace and mercy. He promised them, this isn't a nicety as I said, this is their deliverance. This is God finally blessing his people with peace that doesn't get taken away through his mercy. And so it's perhaps the most significant part of the Amita. Paul is not saying here, as many think, that God's promises to the nation of Israel have been nullified. Nor is he saying here that the church has replaced the nation of Israel, as many people take from this verse. They say, see, peace mercy upon the Israel of God. We're not any more supposed to think that God has anything to do with the, the physical nation of Israel anymore. He's not saying that here. Paul is simply pointing out a long understood and recognized fact. A long understood and recognized fact. That not all Israel are Israel. You'll remember that statement in Romans 9 verse 6, that not all Israel are Israel. That wasn't some new idea in the New Testament. That was a long-recognized fact by Jews themselves, that not everyone who's a part of the nation of Israel actually is righteous. God has promised blessing to Israel, but it will come to Israel when Israel is righteous. The nation has historically been unrighteous, but there's always been a righteous remnant. There's always been a seed that God's preserved. There's always been the true children of Abraham within the nation of Abraham. And so that thought is not new. But like Abraham, here's the new distinctive idea in Christianity that the Jews didn't understand. Like Abraham, the remnant within Israel was righteous and is righteous through faith and not through the works of the law. Abraham was righteous before God by faith. And the Israel of God, that is, those who walk according to this rule, Those who walk according to the rule that the only thing that matters is the new creation. It's not what we do and our works and our establishment of righteousness. But it's only what God through the Messiah will establish and does establish. Peace and mercy be upon them for they are the true people of God. They are the Israel within Israel. They are the remnant. It's one of the great mysteries in the Bible that the Gentiles who are not in the nation of Israel have been grafted in through faith in Jesus. You can read about it in Romans 11. The Gentiles who believe in Christ are the true sons of Abraham with Jews who believe in Christ as well. And they are the Israel of God. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that those Israelites who don't believe in Jesus They are not the Israel of God. But I do believe that one day all of that nation will become the Israel of God through faith. But the great point here, Paul's not getting into all those details. His great point is that God's promised blessings of peace, his blessing of salvation is only upon the Israel of God. Only upon those who walk by this rule of faith in Jesus. And so here's why we need to take heed to the book of Galatians, because this is about far more than just rituals. This is about how we can obtain peace and mercy from God, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. Lastly, the book of Galatians is to be heeded by us because it was written by one who suffered for Jesus' sake and suffered greatly. In verse 17, Paul concludes by saying this, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Unlike the false teachers who sought to abolish persecution by avoiding the truth and by nullifying the truth, Paul, the exact opposite of them, suffered for the truth, suffered as Jesus himself Suffered for the truth. And this showed that he was a true disciple of Jesus. He was a true disciple of Jesus. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus said that the, the servant is not better than the master. If they hated me, they will hate you too. If they persecute me, they will persecute you too. If they accept my word, they will accept your word. Jesus knew that those who listened to the apostles were actually listening to him. And those who rejected the apostles were actually rejecting him because their message was the same. And what we see in the apostle Paul is a man who suffered deeply. And I'm not going to go into all that he suffered. You can read about it yourself in the Bible. He suffered deeply. And why did he suffer? for the message of the cross. That is why he suffered. He suffered primarily not at the hands of the pagans, but at the hands of the Jews who hated him because they said that he was preaching that we did not have to keep the law in order to be saved. He was nullifying the law in their mind, and he was saying that it's just by grace that we are saved. They were hating him and persecuting him for the very same reason that he had originally persecuted the church. And when you see someone, brothers and sisters, suffering and being persecuted for the very message of righteousness, why are they hating this man? Because he's telling us that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Because he's telling us all that we're evil. Because he's telling us that it's just a gift. And we should know this man belongs to Jesus. Martin Luther has this beautiful thing to say about our sufferings for Christ. When we consider the sufferings we receive, only so far as we ourselves are involved in them, they become not only troubling but intolerable. But when the second person, thy, is added to them, so that we may say, we share abundantly in thy sufferings, O Christ. As the psalm says, for thy sake we are slain all day long, then our sufferings become not only easy, but actually sweet. Beautiful. They're saying, look, when you're persecuted for Christ, if you only think about it that, as if you yourself are involved, your sufferings will be intolerable. But when you realize that the reason why you're hated by the world is because it's actually the truth, and it's actually Christ who's being hated, and it actually becomes easy and sweet. Luther uh, made... Rightly observed. But Paul is not just highlighting here his, his own solidarity with Christ, but he's urging others not to trouble him because of it. Meaning, look, don't trouble me because I share in my body, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I have solidarity with Christ. And therefore, to malign me and to trouble me and to to quibble about whether I'm an apostle or not and to turn from what I'm saying is actually turning away from Jesus himself. And that's what many people do even today. It's not just a problem in the ancient world that they were questioning Paul's apostleship and saying, I don't think this, this message of righteousness through faith is true. But even today, many actually malign Paul and they say he hijacked Christianity. He, he, he's the one who... Ruined the message of Jesus. He's such a jerk, that Paul, telling us that we're all sinners and that it's just a gift. What a horrible person he is. And they malign him. But by, they, but by doing that, they don't realize that they're really maligning Jesus. Because when you examine the case, why do they hate this man? They're hating him for the same reason that Jesus was hated. Paul carried the message and therefore the scars of Jesus. And let that be a reason to pay attention to his letter. And so in closing here, brothers and sisters, we do well to take heed to this remarkable letter because of its unique urgency, its crucial subject matter, and its scar-branded author. This is a book that we cannot afford to ignore or to get wrong. And it's sad to see so many people, even religious people, ignoring it and getting it wrong. We can't afford to do that. For those of us who heed this book and who understand it, the issues involved in it, and who believe the truth contained in it of righteousness, we are the true children of God and shall obtain salvation through faith. That's good news. I want to encourage us all this morning who have believed and understood this message that you are the children of God, you are the Israel of God, and God's peace and his mercy is upon you. And I'd like to just encourage all the believers this morning that God is for you and his peace is upon you because you have... Uh, your old creation is gone, your old man is gone, and you stand in a totally new mode of existence to God now in Jesus. Get up in the morning tomorrow and rejoice in that. And rejoice in the peace and the mercy that you have in Christ. And I also want to warn those who do not believe in the things here in Galatians. They don't walk according to this rule, therefore they are not the Israel of God. And I want to tell you this morning that if you're not a Christian, God's mercy and peace are not upon you. His patience is upon you. His goodness wants to be upon you. He's offering you this gift in his grace towards you. But until you accept Jesus and until you rest in his salvation, give up your own self-righteousness and boast only in the cross, then his salvation is not yet yours. But God will ha- wants to give that to you. So there's no- take it. There's no reason not to. As we close the series, let's just look at verse 18. Paul closes with the key concept here of grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace that we've been talking about, the grace that we've been discussing Paul is not just praying here. Paul is not so much asking God to give them grace as he is asking God that the readers would acknowledge and enjoy and be affected by the grace that God has given in Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that God has revealed and has given, may it be with your spirit, May you see it. May you enjoy it. May you be affected by it. May we all do so, brothers and sisters, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that that means. And I do pray, Lord, with Paul that this grace would be with our spirits. That we Christians would come to a deeper understanding of this grace. And Lord, that many around us and in this city who don't understand it would come to a knowledge of it. Thank you for this wonderful letter. Help us, Lord, to take heed to it realize its seriousness and importance. And as Ken prayed earlier, Lord, or asked earlier, that we would uh, see the urgency of also taking this message of your grace to those who do not know it yet and who do not realize they're slaves. Thank you for your goodness in loving us, in reaching out to us, in caring for us even while we were sinners. Father, we give you thanks, we give you praise, we give you glory. It all belongs to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name.